Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you as always for the gathering of your saints today. And we yield to you, O Lord, to guide us, to illuminate us, and to order the steps before us. Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence not only to sharpen and to heighten our understanding of your word that will be learned here today, but give us, O Lord, the fervor, the confidence, the animation to treasure your words so it will abide in us and bear fruit for years and years to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So today we're going to continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, and today's topic are the major prophets. Now when I say the major prophets, I'm referring to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. But I have to say from the start that people use the delineations, major and minor prophets, we ought not to be confused because major and minor doesn't denote increased importance. So the book of Isaiah, for example, is not more important than the book of Amos or Malachi, right? And I've always told people, I never want to be in heaven one day and look Amos in the face and say, your book was minor. At the end of the day, all the prophetic books are in God's word and they're all relevant. So although we say major and minor, the better classification would be those prophets that have the longer books, that is is the major prophets, and those who have the shorter books, those who are the, the minor prophets. Now, today's topic is beyond the major prophets, so someone please tell me what is a prophet? Yes, a prophet is someone who essentially speaks on behalf of God. So, in the history of Israel, in the history of the Old Testament, God always needed a reliable mouthpiece to communicate his words to people. There is only one instance in the Bible where God directly communicated to the people as a whole, and that was atop of Mount Sinai. And the people were so afraid, the people were so struck with fear, they implored Moses and said, please mediate for us because being in the presence of God is terrifying. So ever since then, God would then commission and send a prophet who was his mouthpiece. He would speak on behalf of God. So whenever you read a prophetic book, it'll never say, thus saith Isaiah, or thus saith Jeremiah. It'll always say, thus saith the Lord. Now if we take a step back, we've already gone through the books of Kings and Chronicles. The prophets in general fulfilled their prophetic offices when certain kings were on the throne when the kingdom of Israel stood, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the book of Kings gives us the history of Israel from the standpoint of the throne, from the kingly office. The book of Chronicles 
gives us the history of the nation of Israel from the standpoint of the altar, from the religious standpoint. The book of prophets now, you have prophets being raised up while kings are on the throne, so when there wasn't a reliable mouthpiece elsewhere, God would raise up a prophet to speak on his behalf. The first book we're going to talk about today is the book of Isaiah. Now, someone please tell me, what's the big picture? What's the big idea in the book of Isaiah? So the big idea of the book of Isaiah is the person of the Messiah. The big idea of the book of Isaiah is the person of the Messiah. And what I mean by that is this. Isaiah describes the full dimension from start to finish of God's redemptive plan. Isaiah mimics the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. In the first 39 books of the Bible, Old Testament, you have law, judgment, cursing, condemnation. In the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, you have grace, redemption, salvation. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah now, you have judgment, you have sin, you have disobedience, and the resultant wrath. In the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, you basically have God's redemptive plan. So in Isaiah, being a microcosm or a small picture of the entire Bible, going from start to finish, judgment through salvation, the question now is, how does God accomplish that entire grand plan? And that is through the Messiah. So the big idea of the book of Isaiah is it points forward to the person of the Messiah. Isaiah is critically important because it's the prophetic book that's quoted the most in the New Testament, and of any other Old Testament book, we get the clearest picture of who the Messiah will be in Isaiah. Isaiah also gives us the idea of the remnant or a consecrated people of God who will be preserved in the midst of adversity. So, Isaiah gives such a clear picture of the Messiah to come, it's often called the fifth gospel. But in reality, Isaiah is the first gospel. We don't begin learning about, about Jesus. We don't have to wait until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because a thorough understanding of Isaiah gives us a clear enough picture of who would be to come. Isaiah gives us the first picture that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah gives us an idea of Christ's character, including the fact that he will be both God and man. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, therefore he will be a person. But he will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. So the Messiah will both be born a person, but also be God, therefore a God-man. Isaiah tells about the Messiah's character and mission. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, it tells us he will come from the root of Jesse, and it also tells us about how the Messiah will exalt or lift up 
those who are afflicted. In Isaiah 61, the chapter begins by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And when Jesus begins his uh, New Testament ministry, he's in the synagogue one day teaching the people, and he uses that chapter and says, by the way, Isaiah was prophesying about me. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he would therefore be the one to, exalt, to lift up those who are broken down. So as I said, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah details God's plan of salvation. It's 27 chapters, the last 27. 27 is divisible by 3 into 9s. 9, 9, and 9. So when you look at a map of the final 27 chapters of Isaiah, the first 9 chapters deals with redemption from Babylonian exile. The middle nine chapters deals with redemption from sin. And the final nine chapters deals with the redemption of all of creation from the curse of sin, ending in the final eternal kingdom of God. God is so smart, he designed Isaiah in such a way that in the dead center, in the middle of this grand plan of redemption at the gravitational center, you have Isaiah chapter 53. And I dare say, Isaiah 53 is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. Now, why would I say that? Because this gives us the clearest picture before the Gospels of... Jesus Christ. But not only that, it tells us about the Messiah 700 years before he was even born, and it tells us this Messiah would be born, he would live, he would die, he would be buried, he would be resurrected, he would ascend, and then he would be exalted. If you take Isaiah 53 and Psalm 110, you have a pretty clear picture of who the Messiah is going to be. Isaiah 53 is so important that virtually every word from the chapter is quoted in the New Testament. And again, this was written 700, this was even written before crucifixion even existed, but it predicts Christ would be crucified. Isaiah 53 is so damaging. It gives us such a clear picture of who Christ is going to be. It's called the torture chamber of the rabbis. Because it's impossible to read this chapter and not realize immediately it's talking about Christ. Christians now call this the suffering servant song. John MacArthur is a pastor teacher. He's been preaching now for 50 years, longer than I've been alive. He says there is, there is one important question in life everyone has to answer. And that question is, quote, How can a sinner be made right with God so as to escape hell and enter into heaven? End quote. What gives us the answer to that question? Isaiah 53. So let's dive in. What does Isaiah 53 say? So let's back up. In Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, it talks about an exalted servant. 
And this exalted servant is one who will sprinkle not just the Jews, not just Israel, but many nations. Meaning, in a Jewish Old Testament, this Messiah to come is going to redeem the entire world. Then in Isaiah 53, the text begins by saying, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Parched meaning dry. Parched meaning without life. In other words, Isaiah is telling us this Messiah will come from nothing special. And Jesus was a Nazarene. And what good ever comes out of Nazareth? It's going to tell us and point forward to the fact that Jesus was born in a manger amongst animals, a lowly position that was regarded as being unclean. And from parched ground means that he will be totally and completely unimpressive. People will look at him and say, this clearly can't be the Messiah. The text then says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, when you look at him, he totally lacks any worldly attributes of power. Verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men. This word men means those who have power. So politically, socially, economically, religiously, anyone who had prestige, anyone who had a title, would reject him. The text then says he would not be esteemed, which is a Hebrew phrase meaning he's not even worthy to be named by name or to be thought about. This is where it gets good. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. This is what this text says. The text says this Messiah will carry our grief, will carry our sorrow. But when we look at him, we're going to think God is punishing him. We're going to think he's the guilty one. We're going to think he's the one who was the false prophet, and God is now condemning him. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Christ was pierced on his head with a crown of thorns. He was pierced in his wrists with nails. He was pierced in his feet with nails. He was pierced in his side with his spear. But the biggest piercing was the separation that he had to experience being distanced from God because of our iniquities when he cried out and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And all of that was done. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was righteous. It was for the grief, sorrow, iniquities, and transgressions of all those people he came into the world to save. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that this Messiah will pay a debt that you or I could never pay. And he died so that you or I wouldn't have to. When someone is truly saved 
and someone truly understands the central message of the Bible, it's found right here in Isaiah 53.5. Because when you read this, you realize it should have been me on that cross. It should have been everyone else on that cross. But instead of me or you being up there, Christ took our place as a substitution, and he was pierced for our. He was pierced for my transgressions. And this idea of piercing isn't exclusive to Isaiah, because in Zechariah 12.10, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh speaking, and he basically says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Verse 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, which gives us the idea of substitution again. He died so we wouldn't have to. Verse <clears throat> number seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now here's the irony. When David was guilty of sin and David was repenting, Psalm 51, what did he do? He opened his mouth. When Job was innocent and he was suffering in the book of Job, what did he do? He opened his mouth. But the Messiah wouldn't say a word. Men who were guilty, men who were innocent, they speak, they vocalize. But the Messiah, who was God in the flesh, didn't utter but one syllable. Verses uh, 8 to 9, yet he was with a rich man in his death, which points forward to who? Joseph of Arimathea. He was uh, scheduled, he was supposed to be buried with other common criminals, quote-unquote, but he was buried in the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had set aside for Christ and Christ alone. Verse number 10. Verse number 10 gives us a, a specific reason as to the meaning, as to why the Messiah was going to die. In all the other verses preceding this, we're told that the Messiah would die, but verse number 10 gives us a clear explanation of what his death means, of the purpose God has in the Messiah's death. Verse number 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus. Question, who killed Christ, the Jews or the Romans? It's a trick question. No one did. God killed God. What does the text say? But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Jews, the Romans, could never have killed Christ unless it was in God's plan from the start for the Messiah to die. Now, why would God do that? Why did God allow himself to die? Verse 10 tells us, to render himself as a guilt offering. What does that mean? We go back to Leviticus now. A guilt offering is basically an offering for sin, and whatever is offered dies, right? So if he offers himself as a guilt offering, that means he dies. What does the next thing say? He will see his offspring. Time out. If he renders himself a guilt offering and he dies, how will he see his offspring unless he doesn't stay dead? This is the foreshadowing of the resurrection. 
He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is what the good pleasure of the Lord means. The end point of salvation is never you and me. We are the means of salvation, but we're never God's goal in salvation. Let me explain this. God the Father in eternity chooses the elect. He predestines those who are going to be saved. And he basically says, the elect is the bride that I'm going to gift to my son, Jesus. Jesus now comes into the world and using human marriage language, his death on the cross, his atonement, his ransom that he pays, in figurative terms, is the dowry that he pays to secure his bride, who are the elect, who are those who are chosen. The Holy Spirit now, knowing who the Father has predestined, he is the one who raises us up to new life, who opens our eyes to see the truth. So, the only reason why anyone is ever saved isn't because of that person. We are the means by which it happens. But the reason why salvation is guaranteed is because the Father made an eternal promise to the Son and a promise that God made uh, to God will never be forsaken. So as a result of that promise, all of God's children are the bride being prepared who one day in eternity will dwell with Christ forever in paradise. Verses 11 to 12. We now switch to future tense, where it talks about the righteous one who will justify, who will divide the booty with the strong. What does this mean? This basically means this Messiah, by his life, his death, and his resurrection, those whom he came into the world to save will now be declared just, will now be declared righteous, and will not only be in paradise, But the internal inheritance that the Messiah now secures, he shares. He's not selfish. We become co-heirs or co-inheritors of the promise in paradise forever and dwell with him in eternal fellowship. Paul leans on this language a lot of justification in the book of Romans. And what I hope is now crystal clear is that everything that Isaiah talks about in chapter 53 is essentially the New Testament. All the epistles, what Paul says in Romans, is an expansion of what Isaiah already laid out in chapter 53, which is why it is called the first gospel. The next book, book of Jeremiah. Someone tell me, what is the big idea of the book of Jeremiah. The big idea of the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah. What do I mean by that? I mean the heart of the prophet. Let me explain that. In no other prophetic book, the prophetic books are relevant because it's God's word and the content of what it said has divine value. But in no other prophetic book does the person actually speaking the words factor into the thrust or the import of what the text actually says. So what I mean by that is this. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. He was a tender-hearted man who delivered a harsh, a brutal, 
brutal message. So God shows a guy who gave these cataclysmically sharp words of judgment to God's people, but it broke Jeremiah's heart. And when you read Jeremiah, you can feel the anguish, you can feel the heartbrokenness of a prophet who was called to deliver these words. And Jeremiah now, in a sense, gives us a picture or a snapshot of God, where on the one hand, he's delivering these harsh words of foreshadowing of judgment and rebuke over disobedience, but on the other hand, God, in his heart, doesn't delight isn't joyful about these words. It actually breaks God's heart to use human language when he sees his people walking in a way that is not his will. So the big idea of the book of Jeremiah is the heart of the prophet. Jeremiah was the last prophet to fulfill his office in the southern kingdom of Judah before the Babylonians came and exiled everyone. Jeremiah was a Benjamite, And the beginning of his book says he was called to be a prophet to many nations. That's important because in the New Testament, who was the Benjamite? Who was the most famous Benjamite in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul, who was an apostle to many nations. So in many ways, Jeremiah is the Old Testament Benjamite, prophet of all nations version of Paul in the New Testament. What characterized Jeremiah's message was the word backsliding of the people. It's a word that's mentioned 13 times, but the word that occurs the most in Jeremiah's book is Babylon. It occurs 164 times more than any other book in the Bible. And the reason why Babylon factored so prominently is because, again, historically, Jeremiah began his ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah when the part of the nation of Israel still stood. They had a king, they had political borders. The people weren't listening, and Jeremiah basically said, judgment is coming in the form of Babylon. He said it over and over and over and over again. That was therefore the thrust of his message in an attempt to let the people know what God's true will and what his intent was. And Jeremiah's message was crystal clear. He basically told the people, judgment is coming, the Babylonians are on their way, they're going to exile the people, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah was the only one who was prophesying God's truth. Everywhere around him, there were false prophets saying, no, judgment's not coming. They'll say, no, we will make Judah, we will make Israel great again. We will restore it to its former glory. But Jeremiah was the only one that said that is wrong. He saw the the Babylonian train of judgment coming, going full steam ahead. And he was the guy standing on the track saying, trying to hold the train back, trying to implore the people. But that train simply wouldn't stop because the people didn't want to listen. And in many ways, the book of Jeremiah foreshadows present day, because when you read through the chapters in the book, it almost feels as if Jeremiah is standing on the top of the Empire State Building, making an observation of what's going on in the world, and the same ancient themes that were relevant then are still equally applicable now. Jeremiah lived in a world, he lived in a culture, where people preferred comforting lies as opposed to God's truth. And Jeremiah was so frustrated 
over his prophetic office. There was even a point where he tried to quit. He said, God, I had enough. And God wouldn't let him. In chapter 20, verse 9, it says, If I say I will not mention him, God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Ultimately, Jeremiah was called by God. God put the fire in his bones, and that fire, one way or another, was going to burn a hole out. Jeremiah dealt with the idolatry of the nation versus the truth of God's message. And Jeremiah was particularly concerned with the corruption of worship in Israel. In chapter 23, verse 11, God says, Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. In other words, the disobedience not only was uh, going on on the outside, it invaded and polluted worship inside the temple. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, Jeremiah also had an issue to deal with externalism versus true worship. The people were essentially going through the religious motions, meaning they were doing things on the outside, they were participating in ceremonies, they were doing things that outwardly looked religious, that looked pious. But Jeremiah said, you guys aren't getting it. True worship of God begins in the hearts, and then that comes out and drives everything you do on the outside. So in chapter 7, the people who just got done sinning would then come to the temple and say over and over again, this is the house of the Lord, this is the house of the Lord. And he was saying, that's not how it works. You can't have a double-mindedness. It's basically an internal heart conviction where true worship begins, and that now animates worshiping God in truth and in spirit. That heart condition message, although Jeremiah was brokenhearted and distraught over what he saw in the nation, Jeremiah ends with a hopeful note. In Jeremiah 31, there we have depicted what's called the New Covenant, which is a covenant now where God will write his instruction on the hearts of his people, and the New Covenant points forward to Jesus Christ. So in 31... 31 to 34, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Skipping down, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah's prophetic message tells us that when we look at the law in the Old Testament, the problem in the history of the drama of redemption never was the lack of light, never was the people knowing in their minds what was morally right, what was true, what was proper. It was never a lack of light that was the problem. The problem was the love of darkness because people's hearts were warped. People's hearts yearned to do that which was not of the light. So although Isaiah was weeping, although, sorry, although Jeremiah was weeping, although he was crushed, although he was so heartbroken, he looked forward to a time when God would now regenerate or regene or raise to new life the hearts of his people. And this, of course, looks forward to the work of Christ in the New Testament and the being born again by the Holy Spirit.
So just as Jeremiah was a true prophet of God, he said, the Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians did come. Jeremiah was a true prophet, therefore his prophecies came true. And Jeremiah now was actually an eyewitness to when the Babylonians seized Jerusalem, exiled the people, and essentially destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. Jeremiah temporarily stayed in Jerusalem before he was exiled to Egypt. The next book now, which I'll mention briefly, is Lamentations. Someone tell me, what's the big idea in the book of Lamentations? The big idea of the book of Lamentations is Lamentations. What is in Lamentation? What is a lament? It's an expression of extreme grief or sorrow. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. It was prompted by him actually seeing the destruction of Jerusalem. So now the man whose heart burned inside of him, who in his book, Jeremiah, preached a heart message, that same heart now burned tears in his eyes, now burned sadness in his soul after seeing his people, after seeing God's city fall at the hands of the Babylonians. So the book of Lamentations now contains laments or these expressions of grief or sorrow, or was what was happening over to Jerusalem. Lamentations has been called the wailing wall of the Bible and basically has five psalms of sorrow. So, Lamentations also, although it contains laments, it's balanced by hope in the end. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 18 says, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all people, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. So that's the lament of what was happening, but here's now the hope, the looking forward to God's new morning after the, nar- the night of darkness. Chapter 3, verses 22 to 26 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Now, Jeremiah was a man who wept over the destruction of Jerusalem. He wept over what was happening. He wept over what he saw. But Jeremiah now points us forward to Jesus who didn't weep over Jerusalem, over what was happening, over what he saw. When he came into Jerusalem for the final time, he wept over the city based upon what would happen in the future, because when he made his entry back into the city, roughly around 33 AD, he was weeping over the destruction that would happen at the hands of the Romans in the year 70 AD. Next book, Ezekiel. You know what I'm going to ask you, right? What's the big idea of the book of Ezekiel? (laughs) No, it's not Ezekiel. It's something else. The big idea of the book of Ezekiel is the sovereignty of God. The big idea of the book of Ezekiel is the sovereignty of God. And when I say sovereignty, I'm particularly focused on the religious aspect of his sovereignty. Here's a snapshot. Ezekiel was born a priest, but 
His office began in exile in Babylon. He couldn't serve as a priest because he was exiled and the temple was destroyed. So God calls him to be a prophet. The people who were in Jerusalem, they're exiled by the Babylonians. They're brought back east to Babylon. The common folk are put in a camp by the river Euphrates. So when the Bible says the rivers of Babylon, this is what it's talking about. So you have all these people encamped by the river Euphrates, and it's pretty much Israel's darkest hour. If King David was Israel's brightest hour, this is now their darkest hour. Because here you have the, the, the Exodus granting God, his covenantal chosen people who were in the promised land, who once had a king, David, who slew Goliath. Now where are they? Now they're exiled, they're kicked out, they're out of their city, the temple is gone, there's hopelessness, bleakness, and despair. So God now calls Ezekiel to be a prophet in the midst of that hopelessness to be his reliable mouthpiece to his people. So again, Ezekiel's book comes in the height of sin, judgment, despondency, and disaster, but the big idea of his book is that God is sovereign. So God basically calls Ezekiel and says, go and tell the people, although things may seem as if there's no hope now, this is not the end of the story because I and I alone am in charge. So in chapter 37, it talks about the vision of the valley of dry bones where God says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We indeed are cut off. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. What is God saying? He's saying it may look like death, but I am God because I am sovereign. And although you're here now, I will take you out. So how does Ezekiel's book end? He has a vision of what? He has a vision of a temple. Now, Ezekiel's book is apocalyptic, meaning he sees a vision of what will be in the future. There are three apocalyptic book writers in the Bible. One is John, Revelation. Two is Daniel, he's next. And then there is Ezekiel. You can get into debates about whether Ezekiel's vision was figurative, whether it was literal. Here's the point I'm going to make. Whenever God gives an apocalyptic end-time vision to someone in the Bible, it's never literal Evidenced by John, evidenced by Daniel. So God, remember the context now. The people are in Babylon. They're hopeless. God then gives Ezekiel a vision saying, I'm the one that is sovereign. And he gives Ezekiel the vision of this glorious third temple that is to come. And when you look at the description of this temple, it's bigger, it's grander, and it's more expansive than, than Solomon's temple ever was. And the language God uses to describe this temple, he says things like in chapter 43, verse 7, he says, this is a place where I will dwell forever. What does that tell us? The vision that Ezekiel sees 
points forward to an ideal where it's a new earth which transcends the natural earth that we have now. Even when you look at the dimensions of the temple, which is supposed to sit on Mount Zion, guess what? The temple dimensions are bigger than the existing Mount Zion, which tells us what? There's going to be a new order or a new landscape in which this ideal will be. So what's the big picture now? God is now telling his people, you may think in the height of your despair, this is the end of the story, but this is what I have for the future. This is how things are going to end with with me being a sovereign God. I will now restore a proper order of worship for my people at a predetermined time in the future because God, not Nebuchadnezzar, is sovereign. That's Ezekiel. Last book, Daniel. I'm not going to ask. Someone just tell me. The big idea of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God in regards to political aspects The big idea of Ezekiel was the sovereignty of God in regards to religious aspects. The big idea of Daniel is the sovereignty of God in regard to political aspects. Basically, Daniel answers the question, who will rule the world? The context of Daniel is what? You have a a Jew who's exiled to a foreign country. Daniel has the ability to interpret dreams which puts him in a position to be right next to the secular ruler. Who does that sound like? Joseph. Joseph was kicked out of his father's estate. He was sent to Egypt, and because of a dream interpreting ability, he became the number two person in Egypt. In Daniel, the first six chapters detail history. The last six chapters detail apocalypse, detail a future that is yet to come. And the book of Daniel answers the question, who will rule the world? Now, the book I'm going to focus on the most is Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, God essentially reveals to Daniel what the history of the world will look like, how history itself will unfold before history actually happens. I won't get into the specifics of Uh, the future prophecy, because that can actually steer many people off track. The point I'm going to say is this. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a four-medaled statue. That's Daniel 2. Daniel then has a vision of four beasts. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream of the four kingdoms that would subsequently rule the world. He gave them a dream of their outward appearance. They look like gold, they look like silver, they look like iron. God gave Daniel a vision of the inner character of those kingdoms, and their inner character was beastly. He gave them visions of a lion, a bear, a leopard, and another fourth beast that you won't see ever at the zoo. And God was basically saying, after Babylon, the head of gold, there will be three other kingdoms that reign, but the grand scheme of God revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar and God giving Daniel a vision is to prove what point? 
that ultimately it's not these secular kingdoms, it's not Babylon, it's not Greece, it's not Rome that will rule the world. It is God. Because when it comes to the sovereignty of God, He will be the one who will ultimately rule all heaven and all earth together. Last thing I'll say is this. Daniel 7.14. Daniel has a vision and says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This sounds like Psalm 2. Someone tell me, what was Christ's favorite name for himself in the New Testament? Son of Man. Now we know why. Goes back to Daniel 7:14. The Son of Man is the one that God the Father gives all power, all authority to. He gives the scepter in his hand to be king of all of heaven and all of earth. So whenever Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. He's basically saying, I am the God King of everything. Which is why he refers to himself like that over and over and over again in the New Testament. So the point is that the big idea of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. So it's not secular kingdoms who will rule the world. They're going to mismanage it. It's going to be God's scepter, which ultimately rules forever. And that will not be a kingdom that is knocked down. His kingdom will rule for eternity. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.